0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin week two of our current series, Life Lessons from David, the man who would be king. So let's listen now to our message called, Learning Faithfulness When It's Not Ideal, from 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, to chapter 20, verse 42.
1: Darrell Bell once said, We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on a table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life and we put out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. What Bell meant was that our lives very seldom end up going down to martyrdom in a blaze of glory. It's measured in everyday faithfulness and in constantly walking with Christ, even when things are less than ideal. You know, one of the places where faithfulness shows up the most is in our commitment to the people of God. It means that after we have been wounded or hurt and abused, our loyalty to Christ and His church never change. Or let us say that after we have failed and sinned and made a general mess of things, we dust ourselves off, kneel before our Heavenly Father, repent of our sins, ask the Holy Spirit to fill us anew, and then hold our heads up high and learn to be faithful again. After that divorce or after that major failure, we commit ourselves afresh to be the people of God. Faithfulness to Christ is not tested when everything is going well. It is tested when all the wheels just come off. We've been studying the life of David before he became king. And we last left off with David's magnificent victory over the Philistine giant Goliath. Instantly, David becomes famous. And because sometime earlier, Samuel the prophet has come to his house and poured oil onto his head, anointing him as the next king of Israel, and because Saul now sets David over the men of war and gives him a place of status in the kingdom, it is possible that David may have thought that the road to his kingship was now a highway set before him in which nothing but nothing would prevent him from reaching the destiny that God had arranged for him. Wow, this is significance, if there ever was. This is how many of us think significance will be for us as well. When we are finally recognized for who we truly are, that's when our lives matter. But that's an illusion. For the next several chapters after the defeat of Goliath, the Bible records David's life becoming complicated, even dangerous. Saul will seek to put David to death. And in the end, David will become a refugee, an outlaw, and a man on whose head is a bounty. People will turn against him. And the challenge for David will be the challenge to remain faithful when he might well have become disillusioned. He will be challenged to cling to his principles when everything tells him not to. In the end, he will be tempted to murder Saul and seize his destiny, but it is a temptation he will have to resist. Faithfulness for David will mean that he remains loyal to his God and to the kingdom of Israel, and even to its increasingly mad king, when everything within him will demand he not do so. And so David, like many of us, will find that faithfulness to God doesn't come in one great sweep of glory, where he is martyred while remaining true to his God. It will come about when he learns to be faithful, when everything else seems hopeless and out of control, when he might have wondered why God would have allowed any of this to happen at all. Today, we'll study a large section of Scripture, starting with 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, and we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 20, taking in the sweep of three chapters. So let's begin. First, we notice that as it so often does, trouble begins when we might not have expected it. See, David finds himself at odds with Saul because of the thoughtlessness of others. Well, let's read 1 Samuel 187 9 As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women went out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This act of the women is not unlike the act of the women after the great victory over Pharaoh on the shores of the Red Sea. After the armies of Pharaoh were drowned, Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses, led the women to sing of the victory. This situation, on the one hand, is not different. Women in that culture would often memorialize the military successes of their men, and in this case, it was a celebration of God's deliverance. But on the other hand, this situation is very different. Something insidious has happened. They're comparing David with Saul and suggesting David is mightier than Saul. And this is not new. It's often a failing of people. They compare people with people. I mean, almost every pastor I know has felt the sting of this. It's not just enough to rejoice when someone preaches well. It often follows with, well, he sure preaches better than, and then you fill in the blank. And Saul, well, he doesn't handle this very well at all. He's already becoming an insanely jealous man. He's being harassed by a demon, and Samuel the prophet has prophesied that the kingdom will be removed from him. And this song immediately makes David into his enemy. Imagine this now from David's perspective. He's not done anything other than deliver Israel from a great enemy. But the comparisons between himself and Saul would make Saul his enemy. Or let's put it another way. All that David has wanted to do was to be faithful, and the insensitive sayings of others, along with an already suspicious king, will make him not into a hero, but into a villain. for samuel eighteen nine says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Now the Hebrew word for eyed is more than just watching someone, as you can imagine. it means to observe him with a purpose of sinning against him. That's how Saul views David. And what follows are perhaps four different attempts to kill David. Each one is different than the others. And in the end, this set of attempts to kill him will lead David to desert his army post, become a refugee, and then come under the charge of leading a seditious movement against the king. And in consequence, many will see him as the enemy of Israel. And in the end, it does seem as if David will never become the king, and he will remain an outlaw. Israel itself will turn against him. How will he handle that? Will he think that his fight against Goliath was but a small thing compared with the great battle he was engaged in now? Where well, we're left to wonder, what will this faithful man of God do? Well, let's follow the four attempts to David's life. Here's attempt number one. I call this one the impulsive attempt. See, the first attempt against David happened on the very next day after his brilliant victory against Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, 10 and 11 reads, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. I find it interesting to notice that our text said this incident happened twice, which tells us that David remained in the room long enough for Saul to retrieve the spear he had thrown at David and then for him to throw it a second time. That in one way highlights two things. First, David no doubt thought that Saul was simply overcome by his madness and that this was an act of passion and not a deliberate attempt to eliminate an enemy. And second, this incident also highlights that David will remain loyal to Saul. Rather than flee the room or defend himself, he tries to remain in the room and carry on his duty and play his instrument to help soothe Saul and help him regain his composure and his sanity. And so the first attempted murder of David passes, and David remains faithful to Saul. But then will come the second attempt to murder David, and this one will not be impulsive. This one will be calculatingly premeditated. I will call this one the seductive attempt. After Saul's failed attempt to murder David in his own palace, the Bible says Saul feared David. Now, this is surprising. We might have thought it should have read the other way around that David feared Saul. But verse 12 explains it. Saul was handy with a spear, and he reasoned that the only way that David was able to evade him was that the Lord was with him. And he also knew that the Lord was no longer with him. But now, not with impulsive madness, but in cold rationality, he devises a plan. He will attempt to make David into a martyr for Israel. He will honor David, but David will be safely dead. Stage one in this plan is to make David into what was then called a commander of a thousand. He was to be one of his key commanders who would go to battle, and in that key place, his chances of dying on the battlefield would be greatly enhanced. In the process, something else happens. Without going into the lengthy details of how this occurred, Saul would give David his daughter Michal as a wife. You know, The bride price was arranged, 100 Philistine foreskins. A dangerous undertaking that would surely make Saul look like a gracious man willing to elevate and promote the brave David, and David would die as a martyr, and all Israel, including Saul, would honor this man's legacy, and Saul would look good in the process. But of course, God was with David, and he succeeded. He was not killed in battle, and David becomes even more powerful and more feared. The Bible tells us that Michal, the daughter of Saul, loved him. Then it says Jonathan loved him and then it says all judah and all israel loved him and when we come back we will see david's faithfulness to god leading to ever more problems and we'll ask ourselves can faithfulness to god
0: lead to problems the answer is yes it can when we look at the circumstances surrounding david's rise to popularity we may be somewhat struck by the complexity of it He didn't just become famous and everything was smooth after that. No, it's clear that God was going to put David through a series of tests to determine whether he would remain faithful in spite of the various attempts by Saul to kill him. After the break, we'll see the remaining facets of Saul's evil plan and how David responds to each situation. This month, Dr. Neufeld will be introducing a brand new series, Your Salvation Story. We believe these messages are so important for believers. We want to send you the five-message series on CD for free. This series will speak clearly into questions like, what does it really mean to be saved? What is the evidence of my salvation? Can I be assured that I'm saved? Is it necessary for my sins to be forgiven? There are so many critical questions, even though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times. These are questions and answers that every true believer should be informed about. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app beginning Monday, May 20th. And don't forget to contact us today to ask for your free CD copy of Your Salvation Story by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible.
1: Matthew 5 11 records Jesus as saying, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The problem with this statement is that many of us don't actually feel like rejoicing when this happens. And what's fascinating is that in many cases, this happens on the inside rather than the outside. Here's what I mean. David was not concerned that Goliath was uttering evil against him falsely. It was that Saul was doing so. And how does one rejoice in that? We're going to find out that as we trace this story out, We've noticed that Saul's first attempt to kill David was impulsive, that his second was seductive, marry my daughter, become the king's son-in-law, and become a man of war and die in battle. And now comes a third attempt. I call this one the organized attempt. Chapter 19, verse 1 begins this way, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. All subtlety is gone now. No attempt to put David in a dangerous spot on the battlefield, now just a straight-out attempt for the king of Israel to kill his enemy. This attempt to kill David would surely have succeeded very quickly were it not for Jonathan. Verses 1 and 2 says, But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you, therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself." And as David is in hiding, Jonathan takes it upon himself to speak to his father, and as it would seem, Jonathan seems to convince him. He reminds his father that David has never conducted rebellion, that he has remained loyal to the throne, and that David's exploits in war have done good to Saul. And so, amazingly, Saul agrees, or does he? Hardly had this incident died down when Saul sends messengers to David's house to kill him when he leaves his home in the morning. And this time, it's not Saul's son, but Saul's daughter, David's wife, who warns him. She helps David out of a window. And then when men come to look for David in the morning, she puts an image, the Bible says in 18 verse 16, in the bed to make it look like David is still there. And that buys him time. You know, at this point in the narrative, we're called upon to stop and ponder. Now, clearly, the image is made to look like David is sick in bed and that he cannot come out. But the question the reader has to ponder is, what is this image? You know, the Hebrew word is the word teraphim. That same word is used in one other place in 1 Samuel, and that's in chapter 15, verse 23. In that passage, Samuel is condemning Saul for his disobedience, and there Samuel says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. See, there's the word, idolatry, the Hebrew word teraphim. It can refer to household gods or ancestor figurines that were used as an aid to divination. So it's very likely that this is what Michal, the new wife of David, had. She had pagan gods that she worshipped to be used for divination. And this is what she used to give David time to escape. And it's here that we see why it is that earlier Saul had wanted David to marry her. Saul had said in chapter 18, verse 21, that he thought that Michal would become, in his words, a snare to David. He knew his daughter. He knew her to be an idolater. He knew her passion for pagan gods, and he believed she might. If he failed to murder David, she would still be there to subvert him, and David would be ruined and maligned. And so if you're paying attention, we can see the dangers David was facing were simply multiplying. That's because Michal was as much a spiritual rebel as her father Saul. And as we read the life of David, we will see that not only had Saul lost his privilege to establish a dynasty— so also Michal would lose the same, God would forbid her from having children. But step back and consider David's battle to remain faithful to his God. He is now deeply entangled in the family of Saul. His father-in-law is a demon-possessed man. His wife is an idol worshiper, and the once pure life of a young man who saw a giant named Goliath and fought him in the name of the God whom he loved is now threatened on every side. The once pure vision of holiness is now threatened by subversion, death threats, misunderstandings, accusations, and temptations. See, many a man or woman has begun well, only to find that forces more sinister than they can imagine have made a once pure love for Christ and his work seem like a distant memory. Would David become one of those people? And in this we find the fourth threat on David's life. David is out of options now. He decides to flee to Samuel. Samuel, not surprisingly, is in Ramah, not far north of Jerusalem. Ramah was the place where, at that time, the tabernacle was housed, so that's where you would expect to find Samuel. David desperately needs Samuel. He tells Samuel everything that has happened. He needs counsel. He needs a word from God. He's confused. What is he to do? How is he to remain faithful? He is now a hunted man. He's married to a woman who loves him but is unfaithful to his God. His once clear perspective of God's plan for his life is muddied and he can't find his way through. We don't know what Samuel and David spoke about, but we do know that while he was there, a fourth attempt on David's life happens. We call this one the brazen attempt. Saul has come to hate and fear David more and more. He will murder him if he has to, right in front of the priests of God and in front of Samuel himself. His jealousy and his hatred and fear have made Saul a deeply evil man. And so, as Saul's spies report David's whereabouts, and as Saul makes his way to Ramah to murder David under the watching eyes of all of Israel, God himself intervenes. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul. Saul involuntarily strips himself naked, begins to prophesy, lying down outside, completely naked for a full day and a night, prophesying almost compulsively. A deeply tormented evil man, arrested by God's Spirit, unable to do what his murderous hatred so desperately wants. God saves David again. There have been four attempts on David's life. The first was impulsive, the second seductive, the third more organized, and now one so brazen that David knows that all he can do is run for his life. But he has one more thing to do. Before he will flee into the Judean wilderness, he will arrange one more meeting with his friend, the son of Saul, Jonathan. By now, David might have thought that since Saul wanted to kill him and because Michal was less of a woman than he thought that he might have thought that of Jonathan as well. Maybe Jonathan is subversive, but he does not think this way. And so the two friends meet once more. And before David and Jonathan part, Jonathan will say to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And in this, we have an example for all of us who want to live lives that matter. So many faithful servants, when they are hurt by so-called brothers and sisters, when they are hurt by the church or by someone in the church, will turn their backs on everyone. And this is a grave mistake. Faithfulness to God demands we do not break fellowship with faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I've heard people say, do you know what the church or the Christians have done to me? Please hear me, my listener. If you want to remain faithful, you'll have to remember that no one who is faithful turns his or her back on the people of God. If you've been wounded or scarred, if you've been slander or hurt, you should never forget that God will always provide a Jonathan, a friend, a fellow co-worker, someone who has your zeal for God, who loves Christ as deeply as you do. Don't you ever turn against the people of God. Don't you ever believe that all of God's people are corrupt. And as we will see, as we carry on in this study, David would commit his own mistakes and his own sins. His sins would hurt others as well. But faithfulness means I will not turn back from the people of God, and I will never cease in the pathway in which God has called me to.
0: Great message today, John, and I'm reminded really quickly uh, about uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or in this case, you know, a spirit sent by God taking over Saul. What's all this about?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question, and it does take a great deal of time to kind of unpack all of that, but I think there is a short answer to it. God allows things to happen in our lives that will expose the recesses of our heart. I mean, so much of our lives are spent in covering up what's really there. But God is determined, as in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of, of course, of Saul here, to begin to highlight that indeed in both of these men's cases they were egomaniacs and they had deep hatred for the God of heaven. And so God so allows circumstances to begin to purvey who they actually are. But the good news for David is that this was not outside of God's plan for his life because as this was testing David, it was exposing some of the things in his heart and he was learning to be faithful and uh, God had never deserted him.
0: When we experience hardship and struggles, how do we remain faithful despite the circumstances and the people around us? I think when we reread this story, David's faithfulness to God and his commitment to Jonathan reveal some practical applications we can make to our own lives. We may not relate to having to face a life or death situation, but in a sense, we all have this choice before us. When the rubber hits the road, do we turn our backs on the body of Christ or do we remain faithful to God and his people? I hope you've been blessed by this program and that you can join us again tomorrow for another message from the life of David. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
2: From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for the Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh-Again Southern Caribbean cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and special ministry friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weed. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with friends and family and enjoy incredible ports of call, an amazing ship, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.